Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, all right, welcome back, Solar Warrior. I'm thrilled that you've chosen to spend this time with me today. You know, time is our most valuable and non-renewable resource. So thank you for your vote of confidence. And today's entrepreneur knows all about the power of voting with your feet. Since 2002, Vote Solar has been working to make solar affordable and accessible to more Americans, supporting the policies and programs needed to repower our grid with clean energy. As executive director of one of the most prominent and influential solar energy advocacy groups in the United States, Adam Browning and Vote Solar have served a critical role in the rollout of successful state solar policies nationwide. Along the way, they've also inspired many an entrepreneur on their own journey, as we heard in Christina Skierka's story last week. Indeed, Adam and his mighty band of solar warriors have helped shape the policy and narrative in battleground states from Tallahassee to Tacoma, served as expert witness and counsel to governments from the Carolinas to Colorado and virtually all states in between. When I finally got a chance to sit down with Adam at the Podcast Lounge at Long Last in Salt Lake City this past September, I wanted to dig into the origin story, but Adam gave me so much more. Today, you'll learn the four pillars of policy successful vote solar campaigns lean on, the five focus areas that they are leaning into, the hardest one and presently fighting Battles and Battleground States, Adam's Theory of Change Model, and his 2050 prediction. So get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Here we are live at the Podcast Lounge, produced by Suncast Media and sponsored by Radiant Reet. We're so grateful to have you present here again today to listen to another series of interviews and programming at Solar Power International 2019. We're going to kick it off with Mr. Adam Browning, the co-founder and executive director of Vote Solar. Vote Solar is well known as an advocacy group that has been instrumental in lifting policy to, uh, to bring many, many states uh, forward in the fight to transition to clean energy, notably involved in California and the Carolinas and the Midwest. We're going to talk about all that, but first let me introduce and welcome Mr. Adam Browning to the show. Uh, pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. Adam, you've founded and run a really incredible and inspiring organization, uh, and we're going to talk a lot about the work that you guys are currently doing, but I would love it if you could take us back in time to the moment where it first occurred to you that there was a fight that needed to be fought around clean energy. Great. Uh, so the vote solar origin story goes back to really 2001. I was working for the Environmental Protection Agency doing a lot of enforcement work. And uh, a college buddy, David Hochschild, uh, was working for Mayor Willie Brown, uh, the mayor of San Francisco. 
and he had this idea. Let's put solar. I just put solar in my house. Let's put solar on City Hall. And uh, we started looking into it, trying to figure out how we could make this happen. And for me, there was really uh, a, an, uh, a penny that dropped as I really started thinking and looking into solar. So much of my work at EPA was about how do you find people that were emitting too much and how do you use this command and control to like stop them from uh, exceeding limits. How about if we just skip the whole smokestack altogether and go directly to a non-emitting technology? And that for me was the really uh, compelling moment where I recognized that this was something I really wanted to devote myself to. VoteSolar.org began as a grassroots campaign to literally vote for the city to fund solar. So that the was the uh, Proposition B campaign of 2001. And so I'd never done anything political before really in my life at that time. And uh, I just love this element of uh, there were so many people that were volunteering that were excited about being a part of something larger than themselves that saw this vision of uh, really just not waiting for a utility to do the right thing, but taking control of your own energy future and doing it yourself. Uh, we had, you know, armies of, uh, of folks just flooding all the public transportation BART system um, with uh, sandwich boards and flyers and uh, went out to like every civic group's, uh, you know, monthly meetings and gave presentations. And uh, there was a real element of like, uh, tapping into people's desires to uh you know make their own communities better that i'd never uh that really appealed to me i'd never really been a part of something like that before so for me it was this uh um dual element one of uh you know having already devoted my career to environmental protection and seeing a better way than like just this command and control this enforcement and just taking a a a a leap forward where you're not dealing with any pollution at all. And this idea of civic engagement to get there, of not waiting for a, uh, again, a utility to do the right thing and instead taking control of your own future uh, through solar. Solar uh, was unique in, uh, in terms of like the options that we could look at at the time that uh, you could do it yourself. Yeah. So, and for context, 2001, the average cost of solar. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was nine bucks a watt at the time. And, you know, the way that you could make that pencil out was that you would uh, do energy efficiency and have that sort of help subsidize, uh, if you will, the, the cost of the, the, the much higher cost solar. So, you know, let's, that Prop B campaign uh, ended up passing by 74 percent. It was one of the highest levels of a, uh, a ballot initiative at that time ever in the city. Amazing. And, you know, got... New York Times was calling. We had uh, coverage uh, around the country around this, um, and we had all these cities calling and saying, "How can we? How can we do this ourselves? Like, what? What else? You know, can can we do this too? Can you help us?" So mm. that was when uh, so, David and I decided to quit our jobs and uh, found a nonprofit organization dedicated first to uh, helping cities uh, go solar themselves, um, and. You know, our premise here really was about, at that point in time, was about how do we, this was a beautiful technology, but it was really expensive. And so how do you actually bring this into the mainstream? And our theory was that uh, you needed to get economies of scale to bring down the cost. We had a analysis from uh, Greenpeace 
Netherlands that had hired KPMG to look ahead and to analyze at what level uh, of investment would you need? How much economies of scale, how much global demand would you need in order to like bring the cost of solar down to grid parity? And according to that analysis, you wanted to have uh, a solar economy that uh, could sustain 500 megawatts worth of annual demand. So um, it may have been off a little bit on the numbers, but the, the premise was, was spot on that uh, the way to get to cheap solar was by buying expensive solar. Yeah. And so that was the, uh, the rationale behind taking on this, this challenge. So um, it's not lost on me that you, and, and this is in your young to early to mid 20s. Is that right? Maybe late 20s. I don't want to uh, date you, but I'm just trying to get a sure. sense of no, how, no, how much I, experience was brought into this. So, right. No, I was actually just 30 then. So, okay. Fantastic. You know. So how did you and David con conceive of funding this venture? You're going to quit your job. You're going to start a nonprofit. Nonprofits all, don't, don't fund themselves. Right. So um, my mother grew up in the old country and uh, she was flabbergasted. I had a federal job. Like, what, are you crazy, <laughs> Security, Adam? Yeah. Like uh, you don't quit federal jobs like that's. Um, so uh, we got an initial grant, uh, $50,000 from the Energy Foundation uh, and another 50,000 from the Rockefeller Brothers Foundation, which was enough to uh, use for one year grants. And that was enough to get us started. Um, we leased uh, a corner room from Fenton Communications on uh, 2nd and uh, Howard. And uh, that was how we got our start, uh, was just through this like initial seed investment this was, from and this was after Prop B. So this was right after Prop B passed in November. And, uh, and, and Prop B was just all sweat equity. You're just like, we're gonna make this happen. You leaned in, you maybe got some donations from we folks. We got donations for like signs yeah. and stuff like that. But yeah, this was an entirely volunteer led side hustle. No, no, yeah. no one, this was volunteer. This was fun. This was like, yeah. uh, you know, evenings and weekends. What was so. David doing? You were working together? So David at the time was uh, working for Mayor Willie Brown as okay. a special advisor of some sort. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, he, credit him with having like the political experience of uh, understanding how to um, work within the, the, you know, the city supervisor system. And again, like we had two campaigns that first was getting that on the ballot and that we needed the city supervisors to vote on. And then secondly, actually running the ballot initiative and getting the whole city voters to do it. And, you know, again, like we had early visionaries on the board of supervisors uh, um, and their interest in actually seeing this happen you know, uh, and championing these issues, like that fundamentally changed the course of my life uh, to be able to like uh, and the lives, see and how the, we can make that change happen. And the lives of many others to, to follow suit. Uh, do you feel like you had been prepared with the tools you would need after beyond the grassroots uh, campaign that you need to do? Did the work you had done in your 20s really set you up to start this nonprofit or were you guys sort of uh, no. Uh, in short, you know, I've never had a lifelong game plan of mm. like, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. This is who I want to be when I grow up. Yeah. I would just really credit it uh, to um, an outlook of following one's heart mm. and uh, uh, doing the thing that you are passionate about and enjoy and keeping open to the next thing. And uh, once this came along, I really, um, again, I felt... Uh, 
I loved the, the, the path and I was passionate about the, the goal. And that combination of the two uh, was, you know, that was enough to uh, make me, uh, give me the confidence to quit a job and uh, launch out into the, the great unknown. But I'd never really done anything political before. Mm. And in terms of solar, neither David nor I really knew. I mean, I remember when uh, Greg Rosen of Powerlight at the time, yeah. so Powerlight was the major solar company, explained net metering to me. Um, you know, there were wow. very simple concepts uh, around solar that, uh, you know, when we launched the organization, we, we didn't know diddly yeah. uh, is what it comes down to. When I interviewed Bernadette, she gave you and David a ton of credit um, for work that's been done you know, from the very beginning, yeah. uh, all the way back in, uh, to, with SB1 through to the work that is now you know, getting, through, um, getting through the legislature and changing, again, the way storage is, uh, is seen as a, as a progressive technology that needs to be backed at a state level. Uh, how, uh, you, you mentioned that David had the political uh, acumen. Uh, how did you go about preparing yourself, right? You, as you said, not necessarily a career track mind um, of this is the path I'm going to take. As you began to evolve, how did your roles uh, start, start to sift out? David was responsible for this. I was responsible for that. Whoa, uh, that's, uh, that's a good question. Some ancient uh, history there. So I think, you know, first we had this idea of doing city-led initiatives yeah. uh, around the country. And then, um, you so know, from I've, the very beginning, it was From the very country, beginning, this idea was like, can we do enough city-led initiatives uh -huh. around the country to yeah. make this happen? Uh, and so I remember there were some folks in Phoenix that were interested in this. And so took kind of the template that we had worked with in, uh, in California and started to figure out how could we apply this in Arizona. And it quickly became clear, well, you needed net metering to make some of this stuff work. Um, and Arizona did not have a net metering policy. So it was uh, not very long mm -hmm. uh, after initially starting the organization that we realized we really needed to uh, think about not um, how do you catal catalyze action at the individual or at the city level, but really that the game was about establishing the right state level policy infrastructure in order to allow a comprehensive market to grow and that you needed, uh, we called them the, the four pillars at the time of policy and you were, a market was only as strong as your weakest link. So at the time we thought about uh, we needed subsidies. We needed incentives. Mm -hmm. We needed these are parts. These are the four pillars. These are the four pillars okay. that we had talked about. So uh, incentives, uh, net metering, uh, interconnection. You needed the ability to interconnect to the grid, and then you needed good rate design, uh, so to to get fair value for your generation. So before before you go, continue into because I'm very interested sure. in how you conceptually moved into this citywide initiative. What you just described is is it's easy for us in retrospect to say oh these are the four pillars is that something that evolved over a long period of time or was it for you and david and the other contributors to vote solar something that catalyzed in a very short period of time like oh these are the four things that we clearly need to do you know it's kind of like I, a mission statement it was definitely uh, you know so it was uh everyone understood we needed a lot of things in yeah. order to make it work and here were a bunch of sticky points that right. needed to be condensed and simplified and one pagerized, yeah. if you will, 
in order to like really show policymakers. Uh, so this metaphor of a, uh, you know, the pillars of a stool, you knock one out, everything else falls down, uh, was a compelling one. So uh, we worked then and now quite a bit with uh, industry. So yeah. this was a, uh, you know, trying to best understand what from industry's perspective. Yeah. And then again, this was, you know, this was power light days. Mm -hmm. There weren't uh, Astro Power was uh, yeah. one of the big manufacturers. Um, BP Solar was, uh, you know, this is when I first met Jigger Shaw yeah. back in the day, you know. There weren't uh, 700 exhibitors at SPI because it didn't exist you know, yet. <laughs> uh, I, I feel like, you know, the, the first SPI attended was in some dingy ballroom in Reno yeah. um, way back when. Uh, so, uh, so, yes, there were the, the seeds of the understanding of the problem. What we needed to do was really um, internalize them, understand them, make yeah. it very simple for policymakers to know what success looks like. And to reiterate, because if you listen to, for example, the episode that we did with Bernadette, and even the episode with Julia, we talk a lot about how important it is to have a clean, uh, concise message because you only get a certain amount of bandwidth of policymakers and they have to be pseudo experts on many different things and their aides help them oftentimes come up to speed on the relevant points and how, they, how they're going to align uh, on their ticket or not. Uh, I think that it's remarkable that your four pillars of subsidies net metering, interconnection, and good rate design, to this day, 17 years later, are, in fact, the message that our industry fights in every state we go to. I, with the exception, I think, of the incentive subsidies. Right. So we don't, yep. you know, like catalytic it's, in this whole industry and the conversation was the, you know, California Solar Roofs Initiative yep. Yep. Um, that so many people work so hard on that... Uh, but the whole idea was like, how do you incentivize an industry to grow to a point where it doesn't need it anymore? Yeah. And um, that was necessary then. We did a lot of that policy around the country. But yeah. uh, that's not something that we, uh, you know, that is a major part of the conversation in most places in the U.S. right now. Has something else supplanted incentives in the, in the stool as, um, a, as a pillar? So... You know, it depends on what you're solving for here, yeah. right? So, uh, you know, at the time, really, this was mostly a rooftop market. Yeah. And now we see such diversity into the, uh, um, uh, you've got rooftop solar, you've got utility scale solar mm -hmm. on the wholesale side. Uh, and then in the middle, uh, you've got community solar, the idea that like we need to ensure the ability to have access to participation right. uh, and choice from, for everybody. Solar for um, all, yeah. And so... Uh, the uh, you know as the industry has evolved, as the landscape has evolved, uh, our policy priorities and uh, our policy prescriptions have evolved as well. So you know right now, uh, uh, you know the work that we do at Vote Solar, there are definitely through lines all the way through. Um, I would have never have imagined that. You know, I would spent the bulk of my uh, 30s and 40s on net metering, but here we are. Um, but we've also now we do a ton of work uh, that goes well beyond the those initial efforts that we had on how to like catalyze. So the first question that we had was like, how do you make solar cheap? And yeah. that was like the first ten years of our effort. Mm. Um, and and that was led by the incentive and net metering. And that was what we were solving for. Yeah. It's like, how do you build the economies of scale in order to get to a market where you don't need new incentives, where it is a standalone, yeah, low cost energy source. Yeah. Mission accomplished, right? Globally, globally, mission accomplished. Where, where were you in this process 
and how did how did your perspective philosophy on the evolution of vote solar um, evolve when you saw the catalytic change and precipitous drop of for example solar panel manufacturing costs in the late 2000s early to teens uh you know there was a point in time when i thought i was going to work myself out of a job uh, yeah. right like you get to a point where it's economically compelling and yeah. done deal right <laughs> like all the market forces will just take over and uh uh, no need for any new advocacy. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, that, uh, as we all well know, that isn't the case. That uh, 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 that hasn't proved to be it was necessary, but not sufficient to get to this low cost solar. So yeah. we're up against again an entrenched industry that has economic interests in fossil fuels, mm -hmm. and they fight dirty to keep the dirty. And uh, so we, we unfortunately still have a really compelling need to do advocacy around the country but we're solving for a different issue we're now we're solving for how do we get this low-cost energy source utilized implemented as yeah. quickly as possible and how do you run a grid on variable renewables and that adds a ton of other policy priorities and prerogatives uh, and a lot more complexity to our work so our organization has continuously involved we're always taking the temperature of yeah. like what's needed what what's needed now and looking around a corner like what do we need to prepare for for what's coming down the pike are you most often called into a state or is your team strategically targeting states that need advocacy that need action how does that symbiosis with the with the state organizations work yeah um you know it's a uh, and perhaps perhaps it's worth discussing what your current i mean 2019 uh, corporate structure looks like how you deploy resources now obviously it's we've grown a lot sure so you know many years it was you know david and i and then me and jp and gwen yeah. uh JP, you know a lot of these colleagues are now here at sbi gwen's yeah. over at uh, sunfolding jp is at east bay community energy um and david is now uh, uh an energy, energy commissioner at in california yeah. which is uh super awesome so uh small digression just to say that uh, there's it's so nice to just see that there are so many people involved in the beginning of these fights on from vote solar as well as on the industry partnership side yeah. that are uh from the beginning and are still fighting the good fight from different venues Must be so very gratifying uh we have gradually grown over the years um and uh we're now uh about 30 people in 11 wow. different offices around wow. the country 11 offices um you know Sometimes that office is a uh, uh, a spare bedroom in someone's house. Fair but enough. Uh, we, we write a lot of checks to WeWork around yeah. the country, which uh, has been quite helpful to us, uh, and headquartered in uh, in Oakland, California. Fantastic. So, um, so right now we are we've got five different program areas: rooftop solar, uh, community solar, utility scale solar. So we look at these major different market segments and sectors and think about like how do you what policy is needed in order to deploy all of these. Um, then we have our grid modernization program, which is really about how do we uh, uh, do the proactive work right now in order to ensure that we can run a reliable grid uh, on these variable resources. And so uh, there's some technology deployment that's needed and a lot of it is really around operational change. Uh, so. Uh, you know, it, it can be done. It just needs good policy to change the way that we think about running the grid. And then finally, uh, access and equity. Uh, we are 
really determined that uh, as solar industry grows, um, that we really think about and pay attention to uh, building a more equitable world. Uh, and I think that this is crucial to our fight in several different ways. Uh, one is that, you know, we're, if the solar industry is going to grow to, uh, Abby said, a goal of 20% uh, of the energy supply over the next 10 years, our Vote Solar's goal is uh, 50% mm -hmm. um, by 2050. Um, we can't get there without everybody seeing how they can participate in and benefit from this transition. We need to have a vision and back that vision up with action uh, that is really a, a big tent. Uh, secondly, you know, as we make this transformation, uh, we have a wonderful opportunity to make a more just world. And I'm determined that all of the teams determined that we don't want to pass this opportunity up. So um, those are the five different program areas that we work on um, and uh, our our staff structure uh, uh, has definitely evolved and the type of people that we bring on board has yeah. definitely evolved to, to meet those challenges. I've always thought that commercial solar should have an easy button for financing just like residential solar. But credit ultimately has been the gating item until now. Energetic insurance levels the playing field so that project developers can now offer the same electricity savings to small and medium businesses that were previously reserved for the large commercial buyers in the U.S. Their in-the-rate credit cover policy provides the missing link or that easy button I mentioned earlier. For commercial solar, it's basically the FICO score that we're so familiar with in residential solar. And it enables savvy developers and investors to quickly finance commercial solar projects. Don't take my word for it. Check it out for yourself. Go to energeticinsurance.com forward slash suncast and submit your projects today. What do you got to lose? 70% of projects qualify and the review process is drop dead easy. Go hit the easy button on commercial solar at energeticinsurance.com forward slash suncast. Hey, are you losing commercial solar sales because of high demand charges that minimize the ROI for your customer? Extensible Energy's Demand X software is an affordable new solution for reducing peak demand charges by 30%. No batteries required. Extensible's intelligent software analyzes solar production, utility rates, weather data, and more. Then it crunches that data, monitors solar and flexible loads, and automatically reduces peak demand spikes, increasing your customer's ROI and decreasing payback time. Head to extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast for a free demand charge analysis for your project and to learn more about Extensible's partner program for commercial solar installers. You can learn more at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. And finally, a quick reminder on how you can get more out of suncast this week. Number one, I'll be giving away one membership to our insiders circle of tribe members we call the suncast guild there's only two ways to get an entry you could join the suncast tribe mailing list or you could take the listener survey either way both are an easy way to get an entry you can find it at mysuncast.com and thing number two is i'm giving away free 30-minute clarity coaching for everyone who fills out a coaching application this is 150 dollars value so i do hope you won't sleep on this offer Coaching applications close on Sunday, December 15th. Just click on the Work With Me button at mysuncast.com and fill out an application. 
All right, let's get back to today's conversation. I kind of look at what you guys do as continual campaigning, mm -hmm. right? Like presidential campaigns every four years, and now it's almost perpetual. Your the work that you're involved in is essentially a president is essentially not presidential, but essentially a, an ongoing, never-ending campaign, right? So in this in the same sense as presidential campaigns or, or or senatorial campaigns even have like battleground states or battleground topics, I'd love to hear from you in 2019 and 2020 what for vote solar represents kind of battleground states where are you um, really entrenched in trying to help create the advocacy that's necessary to lift that that state that community up to achieve access equity not inequity to achieve grid modernization mm -hmm. to elevate community solar to to the masses Great question. Let me get to that. Let me first start with just sure. uh, sort of our theory of change, how we Perfect. work. Perfect. So um, we've got, uh, principally, we've got a campaigns mm -hmm. team and we've got a regulatory team. So some of the work we do is legislative. Uh, the majority of the work we do is regulatory in front of public utility or public service commissions. And so... So, sorry, campaigns and... Uh, the, we got the regulatory team. Um, and then supporting that, we have our communications and our development. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, the, the, the bulk of the, the focal point, we think about this as sort of a campaign side and a regulatory side. So the mm -hmm. regula regulatory team, deep wonks. They're, these are the expert witnesses that uh, get involved in these complex regulatory filings in front of a public service or public utility commission. Well, you're making your case with numbers. You're building these Excel spreadsheets that dim the lights of a minor city when you run them. <laughs> and, uh, and you're you know, analyzing the utilities bullshit and you're making your case that uh, do this, don't do that. Mm. Um, crucial that yeah. you get involved at that level. Um, these are quasi-legalistic proceedings. You have mm. to have a lawyer. We partner with Earth Justice and a lot of other regional uh, uh, legal uh, counsel um, in order to intervene in these proceedings um you make your case with analysis uh numbers math but you never win just because you're right right uh so we've got the campaigns team and the challenge there is how do you align the politics around the outcome that you want to see in any particular proceeding and so uh there we think about these campaigns uh in a site-specific context all right who's making these decisions power map it out who do they listen to and what do they need to hear in order to line up behind uh this outcome so who do we need to partner with um and uh and and think about it in that way so uh that sort of in a nutshell is uh uh is our our the secret sauce our theory that. of change is combining that deep level wonkery deep level uh analytic work with um uh really strong state and local specific uh um campaigns that again you know crystallize the message in a very compelling way for policymakers elected or appointed all operate in a political context and you have to make the outcome that you want to see the one that is going to um, be the most compelling for them and that can be uh, that requires a lot of different skill sets yeah. um, you know there's a lot of left brain right brain going on here uh, in our in our org as a as, as a through line so your initial question is like what are the battleground states where do we work and so uh, 
we, uh, it's funny, as I was walking over from the hotel here, um, I just started chatting to the guy who's on the sidewalk next to me, and it uh, happened to be Representative John Zoka of uh, North Carolina. What? And uh, so it was him and his wife, and we started, got to talking about uh, some of the legislation that he had championed. Um, and how upset he is that, uh, you know, as it's being implemented, he feels like, uh, you know, they, he had uh, an, an understanding with Duke and they're not, it's not being implemented the way that he felt that there was an understanding for. And so, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm I, glad that you started with North Carolina. I was going to ask you to unpack the Duke intervening and so, you know, how that process works. So our theory <laughs> here example. is that, yeah, you know, is that uh, the passage of a major piece of legislation mm-hmm. marks the beginning of your work, yeah. not the end of the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to really follow this all the way through. So we do like to focus on, uh, we don't just hang out for the headlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, we follow this all the way through so that you actually get the implementation. Yeah. So you help real people in real places. Um, it actually, you know, this isn't an academic exercise yeah. for us. Uh, so we have, there's a bunch of different states around that we can talk about mm-hmm. that we're really, you know, they are your bedrock bulwark uh, major solar markets. And it's crucial that we keep those alive sure. and going. Then, you know, it is a resource question. We can't be everywhere. Uh, we are always making really difficult decisions about, um, you know, we want to go deep and win. We don't want to like have a toe in the water everywhere and mm-hmm. not actually get anything done. Yep. So. Uh, there are a bunch of other places where we decide there isn't a market, but there should be. We, yeah. we want to like really build something new here, and that's you know not the rest of this, the the country. We 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 pick our spots and try to grow uh, with partners, uh, good outcomes. So we will always stay involved in California. You know, it is the most important solar market in the country. Uh, wonderful working with. Uh, Bernadette and Calsa, um, and we each take different elements of that uh, uh, of the policy fight on yeah. in that state. Um, but you know, crucial that that market continues to flower, continues to grow, and continues to uh, pave the way for other states. Show yeah. what is actually possible. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, Hawaii passed the first hundred percent bill. California was second, and that you know, when you have you know the fifth largest economy of the world, uh, you know, passing legislation of that import, this idea that, you know, you, you can't do it goes by the wayside. Mm. So, uh, you know, what happens in California is crucially important. So we want to make sure that that continues to thrive, continues to grow, continues to set new standards for what is possible uh, in terms of um, as well as policy innovation. And so we could talk forever about that. Yeah. But this, you know, it's a huge country, um, and it can't be a California-only phenomenon, obviously. So, um, you know, New York is a critical market. Massachusetts is a critical market. Midwest, I couldn't be more excited about what's going on in the Midwest right now. And uh, we're really growing our Chicago office. Mm-hmm. So our principal focus there you know, is uh, Illinois, Michigan, and uh, Minnesota. But, you know, got a soft spot for Wisconsin. There's a ton of other things that are really growing on there that are really good. The Southeast. So um, we initially went down there. Uh, the Turner Foundation asked us to... Um, uh, see what, what might be possible in Georgia. And we spent uh, uh, Hannah um, Muller, Master John, and now Hannah Muller uh, was uh, with us at the time. She's uh, 
uh, now working for uh, Clearway, but uh, uh, she piloted and pioneered a policy roadmap uh, that we worked on in Georgia, and I, I you know, considered a um, you know a shining example of uh, of, of real fast growth in uh, in the yeah, country. Yeah, Georgia. Quick so um, yeah, the Carolinas are also crucial to this mm-hmm. fight. So. Uh, we work now in about 26 different states around the country, some of which uh, are more involved in a um, you know, rate case or a PERPA proceeding, and mm-hmm. some of which are like full wraparound yeah. every, uh, you know, every issue under the sun that we take on. So I have a, a million questions I could ask you. Uh, there's two things that I want to be strategic about, and then I want to move into uh, a different se- segment of the show. The first is... Uh, in, is it is it easy? And to the extent that it is, could you explain a little bit about the North Carolina as a battleground, in particular with Duke? You guys recently published uh, some documentation where you were expert witnesses intervening with Duke. Duke's got a long battle in the state trying to sort of protect their own interests. Mm-hmm. What does that fight look like, and how does that inform uh, the rest of the nation of the battle that we're currently engaged in? Yeah. So. Uh North Carolina is compelling in a lot of different ways, and one of which is Duke, right? Mm-hmm. So largest utility in the country and uh, important, you know, in and of itself for that. And they operate in a bunch of different states mm-hmm. uh, around the country. Um, and so, you know, first seeing, you know, North Carolina was principally a purpose driven market. Mm-hmm. This was, you know, it wasn't it was a federal law that said, you know, if your clean resource is cheaper than the dirty, you got to buy the clean. Uh, that really catalyzed so much growth mm-hmm. uh, with a lot of awesome solar developers down there. Um, you know, that has now since been revised by some of the legislation and there's been a lot of change in the market there going forward. But you know, I think this really comes down to a question, uh, you know, much of the Southeast is uh, you have really strong utilities. You know, you're a vertically integrated market and utilities really have traditionally held incredible influence over the legislature and the uh, uh, and the public service commission more so than a lot of other areas of the country. Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of the changes that we're seeing right now in the state uh, really have come from accountability from mm-hmm. regulators and legislators who have looked at this business model and understood that it is not always in the best interest of ratepayers. Like yeah. just because the utility says it doesn't mean that it's right. right. So. You take Duke's last effort on, they called it grid modernization, power forward, $13.8 billion, mostly for undergrounding transmission lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were selling this as crucial for you know, growing uh, renewable energy. Right. It, uh, you know, there was no constituency in that state that wanted to see it besides Duke. You know, Walmart, Google, all the, uh, uh, the consumer advocates were you know, you would have had fixed charges on utility bills going up to 40, 50 bucks a month before you bought a single kilowatt hour of electricity. And that wasn't good for any of these consumers. Yeah. So um, we worked with a lot of the local partners were expert witnesses on that uh, intervention with uh, NCSEA and, uh, and others. And so I think it was, you know, Duke lost on that. Mm-hmm. They weren't allowed to um, uh, just spend that money. They, can, they, they continuously come back. They've mm-hmm. uh, uh, tried to get a uh, 221% uh, fixed charge increase uh, on residential rates. 
And uh, one of the commissioners, when they published that decision, refusing that, um, called out, he's like, this is such a bad idea. Yeah. Bad for poor people, mm-hmm. bad for the elderly, bad for solar, bad for energy efficiency, and so clearly bad, I can't believe that you've proposed it. And so I'm going to knock down your return on equity mm-hmm. uh, about a point. I'm going to disallow cost recovery for CEO Lynn Good's salary, 75% of that, and 50% of the next three highest paid people at Duke. Sending a message of like, you know, very punitive. You re- well, it's it's accountable. It's yeah, accountability. It it's like you actually need to rethink how, you know, your business model isn't just to maximize your profits. It's to deliver a public good and a public service, and really putting the the public back in the public service commission. Yeah, so, indeed. this was back this spring. Um, now you see Duke on one hand, they've just announced these major 2050 uh, carbon goals at the same time. They want to build uh, in their IRP 12 gigawatts of new fossil fueled uh, uh, fracked gas plants. So uh, you've got a situation here where I I really think the utility business model of being paid for capital deployment is really called into question. And so uh, this is a long, wonky uh, uh, discursion on the idea that ultimately um, solar is the pointy edge of the spear that is challenging the way that um, power is delivered in this country. And I really do think that the end game will be a new utility business model uh, and uh, a new relationship between consumers and electricity providers. I love that answer. It was really fascinating. And I'm sorry if it did get wonky for anyone listening who maybe is interested, more interested in Florida, which would take a whole other podcast session. Uh, and if you do have any comments, I know that you guys, Florida is a deep battleground state for you guys because it's the sunshine state and it should be moving forward. And we've seen wins and losses there. Uh, But in the same vein, I would love to know if you would bring us up to speed, what is happening in California? As you said before, as go California, so goes the world in many ways. What do you see transpiring in California that not only vote solar, but, but other advocacy agencies are carrying into Capitol Hill. They're saying at every state, uh, at every state house, here are the things that are coming down the pike. Right. So a couple of challenges in California, many challenges in California, but let me just lay out one here. So we've now got this goal of 100% uh, clean energy. 60% has to be renewable. The next 40 clean, uh, carbon-free details to be worked out at the commission. Our theory here is that not you know 100% is crucial for climate but how you get there really matters mm-hmm. and we have a people centric a customer centric vision of uh, uh, a really participatory model that I think is both crucial for the continued uh, sort of political viability of uh, interest in solar as well as how you solve for grid modernization for grid integration of these high levels of renewables and what I mean by this is you really need to focus on all the ways that you, uh, as a consumer, can have your beneficial activities valued and compensated, uh, particularly as we look at this next challenge of integrating these large amounts of solar. So let me give you an example of something that I think California has begun to do and uh, really will, uh, you know, should uh, be an example for a lot more of the country as well. So. Um, a big part of uh, you know this future is like we've got a ton of solar on the grid, 
in the middle afternoons? Um, and how do you best integrate it? So uh, the California now has these uh, community choice aggregators, so local governments that are doing the procurement and implementing innovative new programs instead of the investor-owned utilities. And so uh, mine in, uh, in Oakland, the East Bay uh, Community Energy, just signed a contract with Sunrun uh, to do solar plus storage on low-income housing. Mm. That storage on the low-income housing will mostly be used under time-of-use rates to benefit the low-income housing uh, uh, um, residents. But as an additional revenue stream for the, you know to, to support the cost of that installation, um, they're... Uh, they've signed a contract with EBCE mm -hmm. to participate in CAISO's demand response proxy program. So when there is a grid strain, when there is uh, not enough supply on the grid and you actually need to really shift the load, those batteries will be deployed uh, to, uh, to solve for grid problems. So here we've got a situation where you're partnering with, um, you know, with low-income uh, uh, residents uh, and you know they're getting the benefit of solar plus storage. The community gets the benefit of more resiliency of having storage inside of those distribution networks. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're partnering to change your load, in essence, mm -hmm. uh, with your local utility to yeah. solve grid-wide problems. Right. So I think that is a vision of local participation, of individual participation, using a full suite of different technologies, solar plus storage, in essence, being a demand response program yep. to uh, it's really a paradigm. It's a, a proxy for a lot of what we like to see around the future. Yeah. And it's leveraging the, the type of financial engineering and creative uh, financing, harvesting the value stacking of different energy streams that we've seen not even that, that Sunrun first did in the Northeast, right? That now we're able to bring to uh, this innovation to low income back to, to, to energy equity. Nail on the head. Yeah, uh, that's exactly it. Well put. It's great to see, uh, and thank you for that example. Um, let's see, check on time here. We've got about five more minutes. Let's do it. I wanted to dig in a little bit on the personal side. Sure. Where uh, you know you've been doing this, you you've, you've had a number of folks come through Vote Solar, and you've been the standard bearer, the flag bearer, if you will. What, what inspires you to to keep this fight going for nearly two decades now? Uh, it's a great question. I have to say, I mean, a big part of it is just, uh, you know, what else would you rather be working on? Like, yeah. I really view this as the uh, one of the most significant challenge that our world, not mm -hmm. just our state or our country faces, um, combating climate change and building a, a, a you know, a, a new clean energy future. Mm -hmm. um, and then it is just such a lovely community. So uh, you are very kind to call me the the, the flag bearer, but uh, I don't get to do any of the fun stuff anymore. Yeah. You know, we have an awesome team at Boat Solar of so many creative, smart, vibrant, uh, dedicated leaders. Yeah. Um, that it's really just about uh, getting to work with them as they work around the country. So um, and you know, walking around SPI is yeah. such a joy. Like I just, uh, you see so many people that uh, have also dedicated their lives to this transformation. Uh, it is just a, it's a wonderful industry that we all work in. So as uh, back to the original question in your twenties, you guys had to figure out how to fund this. 
And in typical corporate startup structure, the CEO is the guy that's out mostly raising money, Series A, Series B, trying to bring in uh, in capital to keep feeding the beast, as it were. Yep. Uh, do you find that that's where you spend a lot of your time these days, really trying to figure out the funding mechanisms that keep uh, it alive and push it forward? That is, uh, that is unfortunately exactly the case. Yeah. Uh, I do end up doing a lot of the fundraising. And so, yeah, over my career, I've probably raised and deployed um, collectively with the team. Mm -hmm you know, over 50 million worth of uh, policy Amazing. advocacy focused on this particular transformation. Uh, the, um, and the bulk of that really does come from philanthropy, comes from foundations. But crucially, we throw up two parties every year, one in DC and one in San Francisco called Equinox, which is the opportunity to gather together in community mm -hmm. with our environmental activist friends and with our industry partners. Um, and, uh, you know, that is the opportunity for industry to help support these efforts to yeah. bring in the money that goes right out the door to creating markets so that we can all thrive. So, um, and it's an absolutely enjoyable way to do it, by the way. And the Equinox parties are almost without, I would say without parallel. Uh, uh, they are awesome parties yeah. as well. So, um, thanks for the opportunity to give a plug. Uh, absolutely. we do, uh, really do crucially depend upon and, in, uh, and, uh, uh, really appreciate the financial support yeah. of the broader community. So for those who are listening, maybe they're sitting here, maybe they're listening afterwards on Suncast or on LinkedIn or somewhere else. If someone wanted to uh, personally contribute uh, or apart from going to the parties, which is a great way to, um, to share in that advocacy and, and the lift, where would they find out more about Vote Solar? How could they contribute from their personal treasure? Uh, right on. So <laughs> votesolar.org uh, is the uh, the URL for that. And yeah, that is your entry point really to uh, get involved in advocacy mm -hmm. that affects your state, your locality. Uh, we partner with all of our members as activists, um, and that is a crucial part of our. So it's part of, it's, of it's capable to. It's possible to become a member. Of you sign members. on, put okay. your name, uh, zip code, and yep. uh, and then we get you involved in the policy fights that most impact you. And uh, and then if you are so moved to contribute as well, um, uh, that support, that partnership mm -hmm. is uh, gratefully accepted, and uh, you can do that online as well. So I know that you're active on Twitter. You're far more active than I am. And you're at Adam Browning. Is there another Twitter oh, handle as well? I mean, Adam at underscore, right? Sure. No, it's Adam, Adam Browning direct. Okay. But Vote Solar is the main one. That's just, uh, okay. which I don't get to. All one uh, word at Vote. You don't get to tweet? I, I don't, I don't run that away. one. Um, <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, yeah. People far better at it than I uh, run that now. Um, but yeah, votesolar.org. So votesolar.org is the URL at mm -hmm. votesolar uh, Facebook page as well. Okay. Um, a lot of ways of, uh, uh, of interacting with us. Yeah. And are you pretty active on LinkedIn as well? If folks paying you and want to, and want to reach out? Uh, I, uh, Yes or no? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> that's I, a fair answer. You, you can, uh, you I know can, that you're, you're active on, at, on no. Twitter. That's, it, no. that's how we've communicated a number of times. Well, let's wrap this up for today uh, with one final question. And I call this the bold prediction. Adam Browning, what one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What do you have in your crystal ball for 2020? You know, for 2020, so I do think one of the most significant and impactful phenomenon that's happening right now is this transition to uh, locking in at the state level a clean energy future. And, you know, of the six states that have passed this uh, legislation, Five of them have been in the last 13 months. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is just beginning right now. So I think over the next several years, we're going to get 
uh, a bunch more of those states that make it mandatory law that we uh, dial in this uh, clean energy outcome. Um, and then a ton of work as to like, how do we implement this equitably? How do we make sure that everybody participates and benefits from this transition to the renewable energy economy will be an increasing focus of uh, our work and yeah. uh, really excited to see where that goes. So in 2019, we saw uh, the count go over 100 cities, counties, and municipalities committing to 100%. Where do you think that's going to be in 2020? You care to put a flag in the sand? Uh, you know, in Total? terms of that, I, I, I would have no idea. I think that that's a, uh, you know, having cities commit to that is a, a wonderful um, demonstration mm -hmm. of like the constituency that needs to be served for it. But you, you really need state level mm -hmm. policy yep. to make that true. Um, and, uh, uh, love the work of all the activists that sign cities up. That needs to be, you know, transformed yeah. into state level law. Yeah. This has been a really fun discussion. Such an honor to have Adam Browning, one of the co-founders and the CEO of Volt Solar. Is it CEO or president? Make sure. Call it executive director. Executive director. director but, uh, well. Volt Solar. Check out what Volt Solar is doing at votesolar.org. Of course, go uh, find them on LinkedIn and Facebook. We'll link to that in the show notes afterwards. Thank you for joining us at the Podcast Lounge here at Solar Power International 2019. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for all the work you do. Thank you. Hey, you're still here. I love the super dedicated outro listeners. You never stop learning. Well, you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every discussion, along with the social media links, book recommendations, and more on the blog at mysuncast.com. I recently added a big button to the homepage. That'll take you straight there. And since I know you're here listening to the closing credits, I know you're dedicated to improving yourself personally and professionally. Well, here at Suncast, I'm also committed to the continual improvement of the show. So while you're on the website, I'd love it if you would take two more minutes and give me your feedback in our first ever listener survey. I read each and every one of these anonymous or not. Take the survey at mysuncast.com. And as a thank you, I'll be drawing at random among both survey entries and Suncast Tribe email subscribers to gift one year of membership to the Suncast Guild, our inner circle of Suncast listeners. In this program, we're going to be doing some much weighted upgrades in the coming year. If you're unfamiliar with the Suncast Guild, you can learn more at mysuncast.com forward slash member. There's a rather old video there, but it serves the purpose nonetheless. Both a survey entry and an email subscription entry you into the drawing. And finally, as we head into the new decade, I can't believe it, it's almost 2020. I'd like to invite those who are planning and thinking ahead to think on how you might make 2020 and the next 10 years the most impactful of your life. I'm giving a free 30-minute clarity coaching for anyone who fills out a coaching application. This is a $150 value, so I do hope that you won't sleep on that offer. Coaching applications close on Sunday, December 15th. You can click on the Work With Me button at mysuncast.com and fill out the application. And apart from these clarity calls, I'll only be taking on three new clients. So if you apply and don't make these three slots, then I'll certainly put you on the waiting list. And thanks again to our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible, Energetic Insurance and Extensible Energy. You can learn more about both as well as our past sponsors at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.